Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. If you'll turn, please, to 1 John. This is 1 John toward the, the back of the Bible, not John. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. And rise for the reading of the word. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother and is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes.
I suppose the first thing I should say this morning, after saying, hi, it's good to see all of you. Hey, look, I'm standing. I mentioned it on Wednesday night. If you're a fan of fish oil, uh, just make sure that it's not rancid before you take it. That's all I can tell you. That is the reason I was not here last Sunday. But I am very, very grateful for the fact that there are men here in the congregation who I could text at 4.30 in the morning and say, when you wake up, guess what? It's all on you. And uh, Micah and Tom and Steve all rose to the occasion. And I like the fact that GCA is the type of congregation that will continue to worship God whether I'm here or not. I mean, if I get hit by a bus, God still deserves to be worshipped. And so I appreciate that this congregation continues on regardless of what happens to me. We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Two weeks ago, we got halfway through chapter 4. This morning, we are going to start in verse 9. Now, as for the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. That's where we're beginning this morning. But in order to do that, we have to talk a little bit about the word love, because the word love is bandied about a lot these days in our society and used as an excuse for a great many things. In verse 9, the entire phrase, love of the brethren, is the single Greek word, Philadelphia. If that sounds familiar, the city of brotherly love is named after that Greek word, Philadelphia. It's a combination of philos, and Delphos, which means brother. So it does mean brotherly love. And the type of love that Paul is describing repeatedly is that kind of self-sacrificial love that we talk about a lot here at GCA. There are three Greek words that are translated love in the English language, and they don't all mean the same thing. And so it's necessary to differentiate between them There is that phileo kind of love, and there is agape love, both of which are spoken of in the Bible. Agape puts the emphasis on self-sacrifice for the good of the person being loved. It's demonstrated most obviously by Christ Jesus loving us enough that he would sacrifice himself even though we were not his friends. We are described as his enemies at the time. We were sinful rebels at the time when he died for us in order to redeem us and secure us. That is astounding love. 
In the Old Testament, uh, we have been reading the book of Jeremiah on Wednesday nights. In Jeremiah 31, the declaration of the new covenant, that chapter begins with God saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. And that is after everything we've been reading for the last couple of months out of the book of Jeremiah, where God is just condemning and condemning and condemning, particularly Judah, for their incredible sinfulness. And yet God's response is, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with them, with their forefathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. So there's no question he's talking to really guilty, sinful people, and yet he declares that he's going to form a new covenant with them. Why? Because he loves them. And that kind of love is sacrificial and long-suffering and nothing like the third category of love in the Greek language. The third Greek word for love, translated love in the English language, is eros. It is also the name of a Greek god. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that there is a god named Eros. To the Romans, he's known as Cupid. We still have a holiday where we kind of celebrate him and send people cards with his image on them. He was a a constant cohort of Aphrodite, according to mythology. And as you can hear in his name, his name is the source for our word erotic. When we're talking about fleshly, erotic, emotional love, that's usually what we're describing is eros, not agape. Agape is all about the other person. It's all about providing and sacrificing for the one who's being loved. Eros is all about me getting what satisfies me, what makes me happy. It's all about eroticism. And so uh, in this day and age, it would be easy to think, well, that's just Greek mythology. And Eros might have been a thing way back when in ancient Greece and Rome, but not so much today. Well, he's alive and well today, not only in Valentine's, but he's alive and well in so much of our societal thinking. If you have ever heard the phrase, love wins, in order to justify some of the social movements that we see today... I remember the days when we were still arguing about whether marriage should just be between a man and a woman or whether we should legalize marriage between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And when it was decided that not just partnerships, not just legal contracts could be made between homosexual couples, but that they could actually be married in America, one of the things that we heard repeatedly was, well, that's because love wins. That's not agape wins. That's eros wins. Now, in the Bible, what we read is God is love. And sometimes that's yanked out and used against us. Well, God is love. And so he loves everybody and he loves everything. And it doesn't matter because God, he's just love, love, love all the time. But what 
that phrase actually means God is love, is that love, genuine love, genuine agape love, emanates from God. He is the source of love. And therefore, he is the subject matter expert when it comes to love, which means he gets to define what love is. He gets to say what love is, and it's not up to you to decide that just because you've got a feeling that that is necessarily love, or that just satisfying your fleshly urges that that is love. God gets to define what genuine sacrificial, biblical, Christian love is. And so he himself has defined the kind of love that he expects from us based on the love that he demonstrated in giving his only beloved son on behalf of sinners like us. Well, that's pretty loving. Okay, so I was going to ask you, Charlie if you'd be willing to give up your child. And then I realized you... uh, See, see. (laughs) I knew you had enough that you'd be willing to go, which one? I was so counting on that response. Uh, The funny part is the kids are all going, me? Uh, Yeah. I mean, any parent, if you said to them, give up your child, is going to say, no, no, no. What am I going to get in exchange for that? No, there's not enough stuff in the world. There's not enough money. There's not enough you could give me that I would give up my child. Despite what the parents are all joking about right now. (laughs) And yet God, the real God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who decides and gets to define what love is, that God so loved his own people that he was willing to give his son, torture his son, kill his son, pour his wrath out on his son in our place. Well, that's pretty loving. So that defines what love is. Jesus himself then comes to the planet and loves us enough that he sacrifices himself, spills his own blood, takes the beatings, takes the crown of thorns, takes the nails in his hand, hanging there on a chunk of wood, being mocked and spit at, and just the most degrading stuff that could possibly be done to the only holy one, and he endured that out of love, out of sacrificial love. So love definitionally in the New Testament has nothing to do with you satisfying your own urges, your own flesh, your own desires sexually. There is a word for that, but that's not what we're talking about. And that is the word that most of the time when people say things like social justice-wise, when they say love wins, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about that kind of fleshly love that is determined by how I have my intimate relations and who I have my intimate relations with. That's all fleshly love. Now, what else has happened is they have taken that kind of love, that kind of eros, erotic love, and then they have deified it. Instead of saying God is love, they're saying love is God. So that love becomes the justification 
for whatever thing they want to do, even if the thing they want to do is completely contrary to the holiness of God, even if God says it's toyawa, even if God condemns it utterly, they say, yeah, but I love it. And that deification of love becomes the justification for whatever sin people want to participate in. So the deification of erotic love is the continuation of the god Eros who's still alive and well. That's my point. Our society is still being driven by and then excusing themselves by the love of Eros. The Bible talks about phileo, and the Bible talks about agape, and those two words are sometimes used kind of interchangeably. The way that I have differentiated between the two of them is that phileo love is more like brotherly love, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of love, whereas agape love is that self-sacrificial love that can only really be demonstrated in human beings if the spirit of sacrificial God is in you, flowing through you. You will only demonstrate that kind of self-sacrifice if it is God who is inspiring you to do it. You won't naturally do it. You might naturally engage in phileo kind of love where agape love, self-sacrificial love, putting the one who is being loved ahead of yourself, that's impossible for our egocentric people to do. Uh, We will only do that if the love of God is flowing through us. Okay, now Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, I have seen in you that brotherly love going on and You have no more need that I tell you about that or teach you about that because God himself has already demonstrated that he is with you and in you by the fact that you're already beginning to do that. You're already being different than you used to be. Just the very fact that you have the spirit of God in you is demonstrated by the way you love one another. By the way, you take care of one another. I am so proud of GCA. I know we're not supposed to have pride. I have pride in me. I have pride in you. So there, take it. This past week, when Charlie's family had to abandon her children and and go down to South America under under threat of kidnapping, when she went down there for her brother's wedding, uh, she's, she's got a passel of kids. And... Micah and April took the youngest in and took care of them. And I watched those kids come in today and run right to April. One of them is sleeping in April's lap right now. Okay, why did April do that? Is it because she's just a really nice person? Let's check with Micah. (laughs) She did it because of love, because of that kind of Philadelphia love, brotherly love. But she's also doing it out of self-sacrifice. She's doing it out of a genuine Christian kindness for another person that shares the same spirit with her. Okay, where did she get that? That's a gift of God. And that's what Paul is arguing here and saying, I don't have to teach you more about love and I don't have to teach you to abandon that kind of self-glorifying love 
You're naturally doing it, and that is proof positive of the Spirit of God working through you. Here's how he put it. Now, as to the love of the brethren, that is an expected component of what Christianity is. If you don't have love for the brethren, what did Tom just read to us? John said, if you say you believe God and you hate your brother, well, then you're a liar. Brotherly love, sacrificial love is a component of genuine Christianity. And if the spirit of the holy God is inside you, reshaping you, reforming you, making you born again, taking out your stony heart, giving you that heart of flesh, if he is working on you, one of the characteristics that you're going to begin to exhibit is that kind of brotherly and sacrificial love where you put other people ahead of yourself. So Paul says, you don't need to know more about love of the brethren. Now as to the love of the brethren, You have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to agape one another. There's that word. You are taught by God to self-sacrifice for each other. And that is something only God can teach you. It doesn't matter how many times I stand up here and yell at you. I'm going to pick you, but I can't. You're too nice. I'm going to yell at you. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) It doesn't matter how long I stand up here and yell at Tom and say, be more loving, which I don't need to. But but the more I yell that at him, the less likely it's just going to happen. God himself has to take up residence in Tom, has to make that change, that regenerative work within Tom in order for Tom to become self-sacrificial and loving. Last week, the 4.30 in the morning phone call, he got up. He had a couple of notes that he had been working on. He sat down and finished them up, came here, sacrificially stood in my place to make sure that you all were concentrating on the word of God. Okay, that's sacrifice on behalf of you, on behalf of the congregation. Where did he get that? I know Tom. He's a guitar player. He's all about him. Where did he get that kind of sense of self-sacrifice? I'm just saying it's the act of God that's the work of God. Sometimes when church is over here at GCA, people stick around and they talk and they laugh and the place is full of life and fellowship and I see people hugging each other and giving each other things and just the amount of kindness that happens within our congregation is really wonderful because it is the activity of God through our common spirit manifesting itself in the way that we love each other and care about each other. It's remarkable. And because that's a thing that only God can do, Paul says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to self-sacrifice for one another. And then because they were so loving, their reputation 
and their love had spread to the other churches outside of Thessalonica, there in Macedonia. That's verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. For we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So Paul said, you don't get to rest on your laurels. You don't get to say, well, I did that love thing for a little while. Instead, he said, keep it up. Excel in it. Keep growing in it. Increase in it. And your reputation and your love has spread out to all the other fellowships there in Macedonia. One of the great things that I I'm just so very grateful for. I don't get to do it as much as I used to, but I used to get to travel a bit and go to some conferences and go preach in other churches and stuff. And the great thing about walking into other Sovereign Grace churches is that I would meet people there who were my brothers and sisters just automatically, just because we shared a common spirit. We shared a common love for God and a common love for the word. That became my goal for GCA. That people would say, well, you know, doctrinally, okay, they're pretty good. And that people would say, you know, they, they sing all right. But that they would leave here saying, those people really loved on me. Those people were really kind to me. And I get calls from visitors who have come here to GCA, and they say that. And it makes me so happy because, as I keep stating, Love, according to Paul, according to John, according to Jesus, his new command. His new command is that you would love one another. It is definitional to what Christianity is. And if you say you're a Christian and if you say you're a Bible believer and you're just bitter and angry all the time, then I question whether you really understand what Christianity is. Christianity ought to make you kind and loving and sacrificial. Indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Keep growing in it. And to make your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. So when Paul was there, he instructed them in the way of Christian life and behavior. And apparently one of the things that he told them is not to be out carousing. Don't go out rioting. Don't go out drinking in the night. Don't be caught up in mobs. Don't be uh, fighting people. Instead, pursue the practice of a quiet life. Make that your ambition, to lead a life that is settled, that is calm, that is not constantly worried, not constantly fretting about every little thing. And again, you can only do that if you really understand that a sovereign God is in charge. If you think you're in charge and then things go bad, anybody here ever had anything go bad? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of life. Stuff goes bad. But if you understand that sovereign God's in charge, and if you understand that there's nothing that has entered your life that didn't first pass through nail-scarred hands, and that there is purpose for everything that you encounter in this life, if you understand that, then you have what Paul calls the peace that passes understanding. And then you can lead a quiet life where you're not constantly agitated and you're not constantly worried because you know that 
truly sovereign God has it in his hand. And so then, don't riot. Don't create a stir. Don't get drunk in the night. And instead, attend to your own work, to your own business. He's going to say that the reason that you should attend to your own work, I know when everybody reads, mind your own business, that that's what they think is, I'm saying shut up and mind your own business. But what Paul's talking about here is attend to your own work, work with your own hands, because that way you're going to have something to supply for those who are in need. You're going to pay attention to the work that God has given you to do. You're going to do it quietly to the best of your own ability so that you can then be generous with other people in a loving, self-sacrificial way. It all fits together. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave, two different things, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders, to those who are not in the church. Have you ever had anyone say to you, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian? And usually the people who say that are the non-church people, the non-Christian people who are looking for an opportunity to judge you who are waiting for you to do something or say something or use some colorful language or lose your temper or do something where they can say, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. Well, we know that the unbelieving world, the God-hating world, the unbiblical, unsaved world is always looking for an opportunity not only to criticize us, but to justify themselves in not being Christian. And whenever they can find something within us, within the church, that they can criticize, they'll say, well, there, that's why I don't go to church. Or there, you're, you claim to be a Christian and you're no good either. And Okay, well, what Paul is saying here is behave yourself in such a way when you're out in the world that nobody has an opportunity to decry Christ or Christianity because of you because of what you've done, because of your behavior. Instead, lead your quiet life. Do your own work with your own hands the same way that Paul commanded those in Thessalonica so that you will behave properly amongst the outsiders, those who are not in the church, those who are not part of the Christian community. They're watching you, so let your behavior be a demonstration of your genuine Christianity. And do that work with your own hands so that you have something to give to those who might be in need. That kind of generosity, that kind of self-sacrifice is essential to what Christianity is. And again, I, I love this congregation of people because through the years I have seen so many of you step up and give to each other help each other, lift each other up, visit each other when you're sick, take care of each other. That is all a demonstration of genuine Christianity, and it's a demonstration of the Spirit of God flowing through this congregation, and that just makes me really, really happy because I like being in a room with a bunch of Christians. So that makes me happy. Then in verse 13, 
Paul is now going to take a hard left turn. Now, in this whole section through chapter 4 and into chapter 5, Paul is answering questions that apparently the saints in Thessalonica have had. And those questions have been brought to Paul now. Timothy has returned to Paul after checking on the churches in Macedonia, after giving a good report. Timothy and Silas now are bringing to Paul questions that the church has. And in these letters, Paul is answering some of these questions. And apparently one of the big questions that they had was an eschatological question. Apparently Paul had told them Christ is coming again. Well, yes, that is essential to our Christian hope and our anticipation. Uh, Keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians. Turn to the beginning of the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 1. The very beginning of Luke's letter to uh, Theophilus here that we know as the book of Acts, he is recounting things now that have occurred after the resurrection of Christ. Starting in verse 4, gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. He's talking to the apostles. But to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, I'm not going to get off on this particular question right now, but I will only say you will notice that whatever Jesus has taught them for three and a half years, it has not eliminated from their thinking the idea that the kingdom that's been promised ever since the Davidic covenant is still coming and that it still belongs to Israel. Nothing that Jesus has said in his three-and-a-half-year ministry disabused them of that notion. So they're asking him, okay, you're going to do that now? Now that you're resurrected, now that you're back, now that you're the perfect king, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's a time question. He gives them a time answer. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Then he returns to the subject at hand, which was, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, verse 8. But you shall receive power dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, whenever I read that, I kind of think, well, yeah, wouldn't you? Jesus, who you've been walking and talking and eating with, who you saw die, who is now alive again, has just sailed right up off the planet and then been engulfed in clouds and taken away from your sight. Well, yes, you're going to spend a few moments staring at the sky at that moment. So while they were gazing intently into the sky, 
while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So there's the promise. No sooner does Jesus leave the planet than he leaves behind angelic witness that he's going to come back to the planet the same way. He's coming back on clouds of glory. Okay, so that seems to be, back to Thessalonians now, that seems to be what Paul has taught them. He has told them about Jesus. He's told them about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. He has told them how Jesus left the planet, but that there is also the promise that he's going to return to the planet and that he's coming back on clouds the same way that he sailed off. He's coming back. And so they are anticipating that event. Every generation since Jesus left has been anticipating his return. And that is the Christian hope. Paul refers to it as our blessed hope, the return of Christ. Christians are identified as those who love his appearing. We're the people who are anticipating, looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back. And every generation expected that, looked forward to that, hoped for that, that it would occur in their lifetime. What we know now for sure is it's been 2,000 years, and he hasn't come back yet. And yet we still believe that he's going to come back. So while those in Thessalonica were waiting for him to come back and thinking, oh, good, this is what happens to the church. We collectively are all going to be gathered to Christ when he returns. Some of them died. And so the theological question was, well, then what about those who died? Are they missing the coming of Christ? Because if he's coming back to get his church, but they're already dead, do they get taken? Do they not get taken? What happens to them? So apparently Timothy has brought that question to Paul, and now he is going to answer it. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We do not want you to be uninformed. The King James says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep or dead, those who have passed away, so that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul has just differentiated between those who have the Spirit of God, who are hoping in Christ, and those who are outside, those who are outside the church, those who have no hope in a future life. Those, when they see their loved ones die, grieve over their loved ones because they have no hope of ever seeing them again. They have no hope of any interaction with them again. They're dead, they're gone, it's over. Paul is saying, now I don't want you in regard to those who are already passed away, those who are asleep. I don't want you to grieve over them as do the rest who have no hope. The implication is you're going to see them again. You haven't lost them permanently. You're just separated from them for a little while. For, here's his explanation of it, verse 14 For if we believe 
that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes. That's a central Christian doctrine. If you don't believe that, get out. No, if you don't believe that, stay. We'll convince you. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then right along with that faith, with that confidence, with that belief, also believe that even so God will bring with Christ those who have died in Christ. So those who have died in faith in Jesus Christ are the very ones who Christ is going to bring with him when he returns. And that's actually something that we've read about a few different times in a few different places, that when he comes back, he's going to be accompanied by his saints, that he's bringing a, an army, as we've read in the book of Revelation, he's bringing saints on horseback with him. He's not returning all by himself. He's bringing his people with him. And if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And then just so you don't think Paul just made this up. Verse 15, he appeals to the authority of Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So this isn't even something you get to debate. This isn't something you get to argue about theologically or eschatologically. This is something that is essential to what Christianity is. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the parousia, until the coming, the appearance of Christ, we shall not precede those who have already died. In other words, we don't have any advantage over those who have died. So Paul is answering their concern about their loved ones who have already died before Jesus came back. And he said, when Jesus comes back, that's going to kind of flatten the field. That's going to even out everything. Because when he comes back, you who are still alive and remain and looking for him are not going to have any advantage over those who have already died believing in Christ. Because here's what's going to happen. Verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. How do we know that? Because of the two angels at the beginning of the book of Acts, who said this same Jesus is going to come back the same way you saw him leave. He's coming back in clouds of glory. So Paul is just reciting what he already knows for sure, events that have already taken place that prove themselves. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, and when he does, it'll be with a shout with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Okay, now those three elements are all designed to create a gathering. If you were calling together an army to a battle, you would use trumpets. You would use trumpet calls. Or you would shout in order to gather people. So the shouting and the voice of an archangel, that means the chief angel, the head of all the angels, the same way that we still have the word archetype, the first of a type. He is the archangel, the lead, the, the primary messenger of God. So speaking with his voice 
as an archangel. He is going to shout to his people, and he's going to have the trumpet of gathering, that trumpet of God. And then what's going to happen? The dead in Christ shall rise first. Well, that's good information. Because we who are alive and remain aren't going to have any advantage over those who have died. Those who have died are coming up out of their graves first. And then we'll all be gathered to Christ. So those who have died in Christ have no disadvantage against those of us who are alive and remain. And you know, between those two choices, I'm not sure which I prefer. I, I love the idea of stepping from life into life. You know, skipping the dead part. That seems attractive to me. If I could skip the dead thing and just be walking through my little life, do 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 and then Christ returns, and then uh, life, eternal life. Okay, good. The way Paul describes it to the Corinthians is he says it's, it's going to be in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruptibility. Well, that sounds like a good moment. But then at the same time, there's just something that sounds so fun. I don't have a better word for it. So exhilarating about coming up out of your grave. I mean, it's kind of like, once you're up, what are your first words going to be? You're going to be standing there going, oh, yeah, I, that's right, I did that. You'd be looking around to see if anybody saw it. You'd be like, yeah, out of my grave. Well, that's what Paul has described here. And notice that every bit of it, he said, is according to the word of the Lord. He's not making anything up here. This is what he was taught by Jesus that when Jesus returns, he's going to bring his saints up out of their graves, gather them with the living saints, and then what's he going to do with them? Once they are all up out of their graves, once the church is united on planet Earth, all the saints of all time, dead and living, what's he going to do with them? Well, verse 17 says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, the dead ones, into the clouds, the same way that Jesus went up into the clouds, we will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will ever be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Once that event takes place, once the return, the appearance of Christ happens, once he brings his saints up out of the grave, once he gathers the living saints and the dead saints, he's then going to gather us collectively up to himself, up to the clouds that we saw at the beginning of the book of Acts. The ones that made the apostles just marvel as they stared up into the sky and the angels had to say, that same Jesus is coming back the same way in the clouds. We're going to see the appearance of Christ in the clouds, and we're going to be gathered to him, and Paul concludes, and then we'll always be with the Lord. That sounds like a good day. Yes, it does. <clears throat> and thus, we will always be with the Lord. Then Paul says in verse 18, therefore, 
comfort one another with these words. Since there are people who are discomforted, since there are people who are concerned, upset about their dead relatives, their dead loved ones, Paul is writing words of comfort. He's telling them exactly what to expect at the return of Christ, that those who are alive and remain are not going to have any advantage over those who have already died, and that is going to be a tremendous comfort and a tremendous hope for the saints who are still alive who have lost saintly loved ones. So this is classically what for years we are referred to as the rapture. The word rapture is not anywhere in the Bible. Uh, our English word rapture just comes from uh, rapture, rapturo, from the Latin language, which means essentially caught up, to be seized or kidnapped. Raptura, I think, is the way the Latin word goes. The word that is being used here in the Greek is the word harpazo. And the word harpazo has a very specific meaning, so specific, in fact, that it's impossible to really deny what Paul is saying here. I am amazed as I listen to people try to read around this section and try to make it say something other than it actually says. But the word harpazo means to seize on something. It's used for kidnapping. It's used for carrying off or grabbing something and carrying it off by force. Here, uh, I need something. Okay. Here is a handkerchief, slightly used. Okay, that handkerchief's right there. If I don't want that handkerchief there anymore, I just harpazoed it. Okay, how much effort did it demonstrate? None. None. Who had all the power? Me, because I seized it, I grabbed it, I took it, I moved it. That's the word harpazo. That's all the word means, and it is used several times in the New Testament in exactly that way. Now, the question becomes, is this a unique situation? Is this something unique, this idea of taking people up off the planet to go up into heaven, is that unique? Well, no. In fact, the Bible is full of these kinds of examples. For instance, we're going all the way back to the book of Genesis to start out. Genesis 5, if you want to read along. In the genealogies that are in Genesis 5, we read about the number of years that various different early humans lived, tracing the lineage from Adam Starting in Genesis 5.18, we read, And Jared lived 162 years, and he became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he became the father of other sons and daughters, and he was really tired. <laughs> and, oh, I just threw that in. Verse 20, So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And when you read these genealogies at the beginning of the book of Genesis, that's the consistent element that you're going to see over and over again. There's a number of years, and then he bore a significant person, and then he lived some more years during which he bore some other sons and daughters who don't get named. And then there's always the concluding statement, and he died. And that's important. That was the end of his life. But starting in verse 21, we read, 
And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Methuselah, by the way, is grandfather to Noah, so that gives you some idea what's happening here. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. So that's 365 years that he has lived so far. And he became the father of other sons and daughters. And this is the place where you would then read, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and he died, except it doesn't say that. What it says in verse 24 is, Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. Wait, what? There are generations recited one after another, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And when it got to Enoch, he lived 365 years, and then God took him. Well, the writer of Hebrews then gives us a bit of commentary on that fact. And in Hebrews 11, verse 5, we read, By faith Enoch was taken up. Metathesis is the Greek word that he uses right there. It means to transport, to remove, to translate. It's the same idea as what I just did with the handkerchief. To grab something, to move it, to transport it. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He didn't die. He was just taken up by God. And he was not because God took him up. For prior to him being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the writer of Hebrews is really writing about the fact that faith, this is chapter 11, is that heroes of faith chapter. He's writing about the necessity of faith, and in the middle of it, mentions Enoch, and the demonstration of faith that Enoch had was that God approved of him, didn't kill him, just took him off the planet. Okay, so there's your first rapture in the Bible, back in Genesis 5. So you don't get very far before God starts plucking people up off the planet. In 2 Kings, starting in chapter 2, I'm going to start reading from verse 10. I don't have time for you to flip. I don't, just listen. This is when uh, Elijah and Elisha are together. Elisha has been hearing, even from the sons of the prophets, that this is the day that his master is going to be taken from him. And he keeps telling the sons of the prophets, I know, just be quiet, just wait. Elijah keeps telling Elisha, now go back, as they keep crossing like the Jordan and stuff. He keeps saying, wait here, just go back. And Elisha says, no, I'm sticking with you. At the end of their journey together, Elijah says to Elisha, Elisha being Elijah's servant, he says, um, ask for whatever you want. What do you want? You, You won't go away. What do you need? And he said, when God takes you up, I want twice the power that you have. And that's where we pick up in 2 Kings 2.10. Elijah says, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, If you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so unto you. But if not, 
It shall not be so. So Elijah didn't answer it. He said, this is up to God. But if you see me go up, then you know that God's answering your request. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and a horse of fire, and it parted them both asunder, apart from each other. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more. Okay, so you're reading in 2 Kings, which is basically a history book, just like the Chronicles, just the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah, and suddenly in the middle of it, God plucks somebody else up off the planet. The prophet Elijah is just taken up off the planet. So we have Old Testament examples of God's power and willingness to just take people off the planet. Do we have those kind of examples in the New Testament? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because of course we do, or I wouldn't have brought it up. In the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, one of the most amusing stories is found in chapter 8. I'm going to start reading from verse 38. Uh, the backstory is that Philip uh, was nearly to Jerusalem when he was told by God to go down into Gaza, if that sounds familiar to anybody today, and to go down there and to find an Ethiopian eunuch who was sitting in his chariot who just happened to be reading out of the scroll of Isaiah. Philip asks the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless somebody teaches me? And he asks the question, who is this man writing about? Who is he talking about? Is this about himself or is this about someone else? And starting right there from that passage, Philip sits down and teaches Jesus to him. Somewhere in that teaching about Jesus, Philip had to have mentioned baptism. Because then the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, then what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe, you can be. And so, chapter 8, verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. It's the word harpazo. It's the exact same word that Paul used for the gathering, the snatching away from the planet to take the saints to heaven. When Philip came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord harpazoed Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. And so he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept proclaiming the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. That had to have been a real kind of mind-shaking moment for Philip. He's coming up out of the water with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then suddenly he's in a completely different city. And so what does he do? Uh, just keep preaching. Do what you're doing. Just keep doing it. Okay, well, that whole story of the Ethiopian eunuch demonstrates God's sovereignty in saving his own people, and in that case, a Gentile person, 
and made sure that there was someone there to teach him, to instruct him, to baptize him. And once Philip had done those things that God wanted him to do, God just took him and just moved him someplace else because he had other things to do. And that word harpazo shows up again. Now, there are many, many more examples like that. But one of the things that Paul has said here is that the graves are going to be opened. When Jesus comes back, that the graves are going to be opened so that both the dead saints and the living saints are available to be lifted up into the clouds of glory to meet the Lord in the air. But that also is not without precedent. Because we read in the book of Matthew in chapter 27 that when Jesus resurrected, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of their graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus has a history of bringing people up out of their graves. At his resurrection, Graves were open. Saints came up out of their graves. So nothing Paul is saying here when he, when he begins by saying this, I got directly from the Lord. I'm telling you this by the word of the Lord. When he says these things are going to occur, not only is this something he was taught by Jesus, but he has demonstrations of it in history and in the Bible itself. In the scripture itself, it speaks of God plucking people up off the planet, snatching people away, moving people whenever he wants, wherever he wants, of graves being opened. And so Paul could put all that together and say, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a whole lot more than just intellectual eschatology. This is a whole lot more than just something we can debate about with people online. This is essential to what Christian doctrine is. It comes directly from Jesus, and Paul says there's a great comfort in it. And if you understand the return of Christ, that he's coming for his people, and it doesn't matter if you're living or you're dead, he's not going to lose you. He's going to get you. You're secure in his hand. There's a tremendous amount of comfort in that. And so far beyond just trying to teach eschatological concepts, I hope what you're learning this morning is essential Christianity and that you're understanding yet again the amazing grace of God, the love of God, the sacrifice of God, and the way that he expects us then to demonstrate that kind of love for one another, to watch our behavior amongst those who are on the outside, 
to work with our own hands so that we have something that we can give to those who are in need and that we are always looking forward to the return of Christ because when he comes back, he's going to gather all of his saints. We're going to go and meet him in the clouds and we're ever going to be with the Lord. And that to me is just about as good as the good news gets. Yes. And you know what that means? You're done. I'm done. <laughs> Jeff.
What a wonderful promise that is for us to know that that's the reality that awaits us, that we will be caught up with all of the saints throughout history in the air to meet our Savior, to meet our Lord. What a victory that is, to ever be with the Lord. That's, that is, those are comforting words, and there's peace to be had there, and knowing that the victory is won, and it's just a matter of time before he returns in those clouds. I look forward to that. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.